Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and you are uh, joining me today with an extended version of Guide Talk, which is one of my happier segments of the week because I love hanging out with my friends, and I always think it's great when we can have adult conversations about important things in life, and there's nothing more important than talking about God's Word and the fellowship and unity of the body of Christ. Amen. I didn't hear nothing from Noah Jeff Redorn Amen. there. Yeah. Amen. A little late there, Joe. No, I was reading from First John. Actually, sorry, I was looking <laughs> something up. I wasn't ignoring you. I oh, was good. Kind good. of, listening. yeah. Good. I've got to remember that when somebody gets mad at me in church. I was reading from First John. I like that. Yeah, I like That'll it. Work for yeah. me too. Okay. Uh, my power panel today is uh, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We'd love your questions. There's some great ones coming in. Some are um, about religious denominations. It always causes some problems, so I have to figure out a way to ask those questions in a good way. But here's one that came in just now. Um, This came from reading this morning, Romans 15, verse 13, and Hebrews 6, 18. So could you explain these verses, and does everyone have the Holy Spirit residing in them? That's the question. Well, let's read... um Romans 15, 13, first, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, and I, I missed the second passage. It is uh, he, um, Hebrews. Hebrews. Yes. Now I lost it too. Mm, yeah. Well, look for it and I'll, I'll start with Romans. The, the oh, answer is. The, I'm sorry. It's Hebrews six eighteen. And we should read that one, too, mm-hmm. uh, really quick. Let me pull it up. Hebrews 6.18 6, says, 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Um, so there, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit there. So I, did I get that right? 6.18? 6.18. Okay. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the question at the end of that was, does everybody have the Holy Spirit? Residing in them. Residing in them. And I would answer, the Bible makes it very clear that those who have the Holy Spirit are believers in Christ. Those who don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit, are not filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the world. We It says in Scripture that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So he is out and busy in the world trying to draw people to God. But the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is reserved for those who believe. It's just like the title, child of God. The world likes to say, oh, we're all God's children. And Scripture is very clear that only those who believe and are saved, who are born again, are given the right to be called children of God. It's the power of the Spirit in our heart, but that only comes through the shed blood of Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you're going to be infl- the Spirit's going to push you. Spirit's going to do everything he can to wake you up, to come to faith. But no, the Spirit is not residing within us. Because if the Spirit resides within us, Jesus will be paramount in our language and our thoughts and our life. 
And I don't always see that in people that don't claim Jesus but think they may have the Spirit within them. So it's the Spirit that gives us power, and the power is to proclaim the name of Jesus. I've told this story long ago. Uh, a missionary told me this in India, but he was had a second-story building uh, in the main part of Calcutta, and one of the tribal chieftains came to him and said, I've read your Bible. I've heard you preach. It says nobody can say Jesus is Lord, you know, except by the Holy Spirit. Watch me. Jesus is Lord. My friend said, okay, hang on to that a minute. He walked over to, he had a double window, opened it up to the square down below and shouted, hey, the chieftain of the village has something to say to you. And the guy ran out the back door. The point is he didn't have the power. He didn't really proclaim Jesus because when push came to shove, there was no courage there to stand up for the name of Jesus. When the spirit is within you, the spirit will give you the courage and the the faith to take the steps you need to. Cool story. You guys done talking? Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm still looking. I'm, <laughs> I'm going through these questions, and there's so many good ones here. Uh, let me see here what's next. Um, let's see. I, I hear over and over again how Jesus did what he did because he loves us. But didn't he do what he did because he loved the Father? as much as the Father loves us. He was the ultimate act of obedience. I've thought about this a lot, but have never said anything because I've never heard this from anyone else. I think, well, what you're saying is true. I mean, he had the love for the Father and he wanted to do the Father's will. That permeated through Jesus as the man. I think sometimes when we read the scriptures and we read the gospels, we forget that when those were written, Jesus was truly God, but walked as a man. You know, when he rose from the dead, that's a different matter altogether now. I mean, he is eternal. Death will never touch him. He has all power and control. And the New Testament affirms he is God. So the bottom line is to love people, as Jesus did, is equivalent to God the Father loving us and wanting all people to be saved. It's one and the same. You really can't separate the two because it's like, both sides of your brain. They, mm-hmm. they simply work together to produce one outcome. I agree. If Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, then it is God's love that motivated it, and it's therefore Christ's love. We know from Scripture that it says in Romans 5, for example, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First um, Peter 3 says that Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. So it's clear, you know, Paul says that Christ died for me, the worst of sinners, right? Um, So Christ died for us, motivated by the love of God to all people. Um, So I believe Christ died, I believe Christ and God, therefore, uh, loves all, desires all to believe and be saved. Christ died for the sins of the world, for all sins, and he offers salvation to every single person. And whosoever believes, then therefore, will be saved. So I think I can understand the the question and trying to make that distinction. But as Pastor Tom said, Jesus is God. So it's God's love that motivated the cross. Let me push that one step further. Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies of the Lord... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life? What's amazing to me is this love of Jesus and of the Father and of the Holy Spirit is so paramount. 
He loves even his enemies. I, as a human being, even with Jesus in my life, I still struggle with loving my enemies. I have to talk to the Lord Jesus a lot about that uh, because I've, I, that's not my normal nature. But my nature now with the Holy Spirit is to move toward that and to begin to put that into reality. This is just the reality of who our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, mm-hmm. even loving their enemies. It is astounding. One more, First John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I love it. Nice work, gentlemen. You are listening to Guy Talk, and if you have a question for us, please text it over, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. I am a Christian, but I don't feel like one. I don't love like I'm supposed to. I never really feel like I fit in at church. What can I do? Well, it's a really good, I got some really good news for this person that you're not saved by your feelings. You're saved by your faith. Um, It it is often represented as as faith being the engine and feelings being the caboose. Um, If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. You may not always feel it, right? But fortunately, you're saved because God has promised to save whosoever believes, not because you feel it. Do you see the distinction? Sometimes I feel close to God. Sometimes I feel further away from God. But I'm never further away from God. I have been brought near to God. I've been reconciled to God. I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, for goodness sakes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've been been united with him. The enemy's passage before it says, we used to be enemies. Now we are friends. We used to be separated. Now we've been brought near. We've been united with the creator of the universe. So we're always there as close as we're going to be. Now, sometimes we don't feel that way. So the question is, why don't we feel as close to God? And I have a feeling if, if this questioner is kind of like me, it's because when I don't spend time with somebody, I feel a little further away from them than I do if I'm spending more time and communing with them more often. So I would recommend then spend more time with him. You know, it's interesting. I've been in ministry for 45 years, and so I get to work with Christians and talk to the Lord all the time. I can identify with what this guy is saying because I've had moments where I wonder, where are you, Lord? What are you doing in the midst of this? I don't feel very saved. I don't feel very wise at this moment. And quite frankly, these Christian people are driving me crazy. <laughs> and and that's just people. That's just life. I don't go by how I feel. I go by what the Word of God has said. Exactly. Jesus has declared these things. And if I don't base my faith on what he has declared, then I'm the most lost person in the universe because I will never create the feelings I need. I do what I do because I'm called to obey, and the feelings usually follow in the obeying process. But oftentimes they aren't there in the very beginning. You know, when doubt raises its ugly head and when these feelings of being far from God uh, arrive at your doorstep, uh, turn to the Word. Uh, His promises, Tom, as you just said, He has so many promises that He will never leave us, never forsake us. He's always there. He's near to us. And uh, read His promises in His Word. Mm Mm-hmm. Got a nice message from Luke. He said, it's been a while since I've tuned in. Man, I missed you guys. Hmm. <laughs> We've missed you too, Luke. Yeah. And he Glad says, to have you back. And he said, the gospel never gets old to hear. Love it. Amen. 
Wow. Amen to that. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, I'm going to spring something on these guys. I don't know if they're going to like it or not, but the way I see it, they have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. My power panel is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. Please don't hesitate to send questions. I know what we're going to do in the next 40 minutes might eat up a lot of the time, but I'd still love to get your questions. 877-933-2484. so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other Faith Radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. All right, we are back with Guide Talk. And before I spring my surprise on these guys, I'm going to take a couple more questions here real quick because they've come in. Anyone who addresses me as St. Bill, has it got my attention? This is Allison from South Windsor, Connecticut. My question is, when we die, will Jesus know us? I understand that some people will not recognize him, but won't he always know who we are? Oh, there's no question. He will know us. He's our creator. He is our Lord. He knows our first name, our middle name, our last name. He knows everything about us. And uh, what most of us would be embarrassed to put up on the screen on Sunday morning about our things in our past life, he knows and he still says, I love you, I know you, and I want you. So, yeah, he knows exactly who we are. You know, for those who are saved, he says that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. You think about that. For an omniscient God who knows the end from the beginning, he knows who is going to receive his son, Jesus Christ, before he even created the world, and he wrote your name in the book. Isn't that amazing? So, yes, he will know you. It's astounding, and it's something that should give us great comfort. Mm -hmm. All right, we're not at the surprise yet. Okay. We're getting close. Uh, Scripture speaks of the fact that we cannot earn our salvation. How is it that the act of believing and putting faith in God is not considered earning salvation. It's interesting because the uh, credit for our salvation, the credit for being born again, is not us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And even the, you know, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. The grace and the faith are both in that category, not from yourself. It is the gift of God. The issue is he gives us the gifts, you know, and it's kind of like you're you're out in the middle of the ocean and you're drowning, and along comes a boat, and Jesus is in the boat and reaches out a hand to save you. What credit are you going to take for reaching back and grabbing his hand? None. If he doesn't save us, we're lost. The bottom line is, no, we don't do any of the works. What we do is come back with thankfulness, and we live our life in thankfulness to Jesus for all he's done for us. So, Tom, you mentioned uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says that it, we're not saved by works, but by faith alone. And that is right. clear in Scripture. I want, But the question goes to, well, what about our faith? Isn't that a work that we do that somehow uh, helps us get saved in some way? Scripture actually addresses this very point, and it's in Romans 4, and I'm going to read verse 4 and Correct. 5. And it says, Now to the one who works... 
wages are not credited as, as a gift, but as an obligation. So if we were able to work for our salvation, it wouldn't be a free gift anymore. It would be an obligation by God, right? That he would have to give us this, but it's a free gift. Verse 5, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So God specifically says that our faith is not a work. Right. Faith is faith and is not a work. So this this word, but to him who works not, but believes or trusts in God, to him is credited as righteousness. All right. Well, we're not going to start the surprise yet. All right. <laughs> okay. But oh. I just, yeah. Okay, I'll hold on. Okay, hold on. Just. Here's another question about praying publicly with non-believers. Is this a good idea? Can you can you do that? Can you give some clarity as to is there wisdom in praying with non-believers? Um, I think it's never wrong to pray with anybody. By the way, um, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. Uh, Paul says, and um, when we both model prayer and talk, to, look, one of the things that I do not often enough. Uh, is sometimes ask, ask my waiter or waitress, hey, uh, we're going to thank the Lord for our food uh, tonight. Would would can, do you need to, do would you like us to pray for you for anything? It's good, and and it's oftentimes you get responses like, oh no, you know, you can pray for my sick pet, you know, or sometimes you get people who get very emotional. Oftentimes it's a family member or someone who is a sick or not, but it's never wrong to pray with or for an unbeliever. I've been in public forums where they wanted me to start with an opening prayer. Now, this is not a church service, but Pastor Tom's going to offer prayer. And I've actually had people behind the scenes say, please, don't use the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I've said, sorry, that's the only name I know to pray in. And I have prayed in the name of Jesus. And I think the problem today is that when we we have these ecumenical prayer groups, Jesus is left out. We don't want to. We don't want to harm anybody who's of a different faith or belief. So we we neutralize or generalize the whole thing. And I'm saying no. If you want to pray with me, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus because that's where the power is. You pray any way you want to, but this is where I'm praying and to stand up for that. And again, most of us should be willing to do that. There are so many people that go to those prayer meetings that are looking for something and they have no certainty in their life. And I don't know any other religion that will offer them any certainty whatsoever. But Jesus does. Hmm. You guys done? Yes, we are. Saint I'm, I'm, Bill. I'm, I'm still working. <laughs> I'm still working if you guys want to talk for okay. 15, more, 15 more seconds. I'll okay, we can keep talking. So I would say pray and don't be afraid to do that and don't be afraid to use Jesus' name. Okay. Yeah, and when you're praying, uh, you might want to even, if you know they're an unbeliever, work the gospel in there. You know, yeah, that's still thank you, Lord, that I am saved by faith in you and your work on the cross and, you know, so on. All right, here's what I want to surprise you guys with. And I, I have a, a book that I bought years and years ago, and I found it fascinating. Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who grew up um, in Egypt and taught uh, New Testament. He's a New Testament scholar that taught New Testament in the Middle East for 40 years. Wow. So he knows what it's like to understand Jesus through the eyes of, of a Middle Eastern culture. And the book that I, I really like is called uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Wow. So, in that book is a really interesting, um, his analysis of Christmas and the Christmas story out of Luke 2. So I want to just go through some of it with you guys mm-hmm. and just air it out and get your response, okay? Because the, the traditional understanding of the account of Luke 2 does contain some 
critical flaws, right? Because we, we hear, I mean, compared to the, the narrative we hear, the traditional stories we hear, um, things like um, there were three wise men. We, we don't know how many kings there were, right? Well, the were scripture three, doesn't say. There were three gifts. There were. Right. There might have been 15 wise men. We don't know. But we, we, we have a, a story in our head, and that's usually the way our brain, our brain works. We hear. So let me just go through some of his uh, teaching on this. He said, Joseph was returning to the village of his origin. Now, in the Middle East, historical me- uh, memories are long, and the extended family with its connection to its village of origin is important. Mm-hmm. In such a world, a man like Joseph would have appeared in Bethlehem and told people, Hi, I'm Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matat, son of Levi, and most homes in town would be open to him. True. And I've seen that in the, the not only the Middle East, but in Asia mm-hmm. uh, when I've been there. Yeah, yeah their family heritage goes way back, yeah. and oral tradition is very strong. So Joseph was a royal. That, that is, he was from the family of King David. Now, the family of King David was so famous in Bethlehem that local folk apparently called the town the City of David, Mm -hmm. as often happens. Now, the official name of the village was Bethlehem. Everyone knew that the Hebrew scriptures referred to Jerusalem as the City of David. Yet locally, many apparently called Bethlehem the City of David. Being of that famous family, Joseph would have been welcome anywhere in town. Now, that, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, yeah I love yeah, that. Yeah. So in every culture, a woman about to give birth is given special attention. Simple rural communities the world over always assist one of their own uh, women in childbirth, regardless of the circumstances. Sound fair? Yep. It does. Are we to imagine that Bethlehem was an exception? Was there no sense of honor in Bethlehem? Surely the community would have sensed its responsibility to help Joseph find adequate shelter for Mary and provide the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David in the city of David would be an unspeakable shame on the entire village. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit different than the tradition of the story of the the nativity that we uh, have come to know for Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, there's lots more. So I'll go through a little bit before the break here. Mary had relatives in a nearby village, of course, right? A few months prior to the birth of Jesus, Mary had visited her cousin Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea and was welcomed by her. Bethlehem was located in the center of Judea. By the time, therefore, that Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they were but a short distance from the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. If Joseph had failed to find shelter in Bethlehem, he would naturally have turned to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But he, but did he have time for those few extra miles? And we'll pick up more of that when we come back hmm. from the break. Wow. You are listening to Guy Talk, and we're kind of walking down the Christmas story out of Luke 2. We'll be right back in just a minute.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. All right, we have a very extended version of Guy Talk today, but we are changing our tune a little bit today because I want to put before my fine panel some uh, story that came, comes out of a, a book by Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who's passed on to go be with the Lord, but he lived in the Middle East and taught New Testament there for 40 plus years and was well versed in the Middle Eastern culture and has written a book that I personally just really like called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. So anyway, did Joseph have time to make adequate arrangements? I think we often think that that Jesus uh, was born the night they arrived. They arrived in Bethlehem that night he gave, uh, Mary gave birth. But Luke 2, 4 says that Joseph and Mary went up from Galilee to Judea, and verse 6 states, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. The average Christian thinks that Jesus was born the same night the Holy Family arrived, hence Joseph's haste and willingness to accept any shelter even the shelter of a stable. Now, traditional Christmas pageants, they they reinforce this every year, don't they? They do. Yeah. But in the text, the time spent in Bethlehem before the birth is not specified, but it was surely long enough to find adequate shelter or to turn to Mary's family. Hmm. This late-night arrival imminent birth myth is so deeply ingrained in the popular Christian mind that it is important to inquire into its origin and where did it come from well i saw it in a movie <laughs> that's right <laughs> doesn't yeah. that sound <laughs> yeah well the source of this uh comes f- uh by an author a novelist or a, a writer that 200 years after the birth of jesus when an anonymous christian wrote an expanded account of the birth of jesus and it has survived, and it's called the Proto-Evangelium of James. James had nothing to do with it. The author was not a Jew and did not understand Palestinian geography or Jewish tradition. Hmm. And that's where some that's, of these yep. elements that we now have as tradition came from. Yep, exactly. Fascinating. Yep. So when we—I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, um, but just if I were to summarize the problems in the traditional interpretation of Luke 2 Joseph was returning to his home village where he could easily find shelter because he was a descendant of King David. Nearly all doors in the village were open to him. Wow. Mary had relatives nearby and could have turned to them but did not. There was plenty of time to arrange suitable housing. How could a Jewish town fail to help a young Jewish mother about to give birth? In light of these cultural and historical realities, how are we to understand the text? Two questions arise. Where was the manger and what was the inn? A couple of questions. Does he answer them? He does. Okay. Yeah. In answer to both questions, it is evident that the story of the birth of Jesus in Luke is authentic to the geography and history of the Holy Land. The text records that Mary and Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is built on a ridge, which is considerably higher than Nazareth. Second, the title City of David was probably a local name to which Luke adds, 
which is called Bethlehem, for the benefit of the non-local readers. Third, the text informs the reader that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. In the Middle East, the house of so-and-so means the family of so-and-so. Now, Greek readers of this account could have visualized a building when they read House of David. Luke may have added the term lineage to be sure his readers understood him. He did not change the text, which was apparently already fixed in the tradition when he received it, but he was free to add a few explanatory notes. Fourth, Luke mentions that the child was wrapped with swaddling clothes. The ancient custom is referred to in Ezekiel 16.4 and is still practiced among village people in Syria and Palestine. Hmm. Finally, a Davidic Christology surfaces in this account. The fi- these five points emphasize that the story was composed by a Messianic Jew at a very early stage in the life of the church. But when you get down to some of the details of when you hear about the inn, there was the Greek word katalama, which was referred to the upper room of someone's house. Now, the Greek word pandokian, and of course I'm butchering that, I'm not saying it correctly, mm. that would be referred to as the commercial inn. When the Samaritan took the wounded person, he was taken to the pandokian. He was taken to the commercial inn where he was taken care of. But Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, said, uh, go and find uh, a katalama for our, our, our meal. So go find an upper room in a house, which is what he did. And there was no room in the katalama. So the upper rooms were all busy because of the census that was going on. So the hotel rooms were all booked, but they were still found a place to stay. M- most likely, most likely there was a, 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 a home, a first century Palestinian couple that said, look it, we have people in the upper room. Our katalama is full but we will make available our main living space Hmm. and we will clear the men out and we'll make it available for you to give birth in this situation. So what does he say about the manger then? Because the manger I've always understood is a feeding, an animal feeding trough. Mm -hmm. And so we get the picture that they were in a barn or something. Well, every first century Palestinian home had a place where you could bring your animals in at night and they're, uh, would be a little area, a little manger area for the animals to feed at night. So that manger was used. It was for animals, but it wasn't necessarily in a barn. It could have been in the living quarters of this house. Yes. And you see first Palestinian homes that every one of them had this oh. area, um, had the guest room in, in, at the top, and it had this area where um, the mangers were dug out of the lower end of the living room. So, and the, the family room had a slight slope in the direction of the animal stall, which was would always aid in the sweeping and the washing. Of but the animals would come in at night for protection and for and for warmth, because it would help with warming up the the home. But also then they would have a manger at which they could eat. So most likely, you know, Jesus was welcomed in by some first Palestinian couple or homeowner that said, "You can give birth right here." That's Welcome. cool. Does he say anything about? The camels, because I've heard that the men from the east, the wise men from the east, 
probably also didn't arrive on camels. They probably used Arabian horses. Most likely he, horses. Yeah. Does he talk about that at all, or is I, that from someone else that I've read that? That's someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, the morning, everyone. Yeah, there was always the 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 talk that that you know would would somebody let a a Jewish young Jewish woman just be not taken care of by other women in the community. Can you imagine it? No, I can't imagine it. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's pretty interesting. I was just looking at the Greek text here, just for the fun of it, when he's talking about this. And the one thing that, that uh, I find interesting, because in the vast majority of the manuscripts, swaddling clothes does not even appear in the Greek. It just said they wrapped him and put him in a manger. And I think one of the problems is is that most of us read the Bible too quickly. We need to slow down, see what it says, think it through. And this kind of historical information I always find interesting. Not that that's going to be my final determination on what it says, but it gives me an insight as to what was might have been going on because I enter the Middle East with total ignorance as, as a Westerner. Mm-hmm. And so when I read the Scriptures, I'm reading a Middle Eastern document that I want to interpret as a Westerner and that's not always a wise thing to do. I need to first go back and get the information about the Middle East and what life was really like back then. That's where this kind of stuff is always fascinating and fun. Doesn't change the outcome of the story. No. Doesn't change anything about Jesus. But it gives us an insight that I think is pretty rich. Yeah, I just have a, a listener that said he came to his own and his own received him not. Right. So I don't know if, if that's just a comment or a little pushback, you know, because we, we all have a lot of... Well, it does say that, but it's not talking about where he is born. Right? Yeah, it was right. talking about when he came to preach the gospel. Exactly. So the Greek word in Luke 2.7 that is commonly translated in is katalama, and this is not the ordinary word for a commercial inn. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan takes the wounded man to an inn. The Greek word in that text is pandokian. The first part of this word means all. The second part is a verb, means to receive the Pandokian is the place that receives all, namely hmm. a commercial inn. Hmm. So everything was full. The commercial inns and yes. the upper rooms and yes. they got to town and because of the census, everything's crowded. But uh, um, yeah, but it's a different picture than them showing up in a barn by themselves and giving birth that night. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. is. It's And we want to understand it properly. I think so, yeah. So this common Greek term for an inn was so widely known across the Middle East that over the centuries, it was absorbed as a Greek loan word into Armenian, Coptic, Arabic, and Turkish with the same meaning, a commercial inn. Hmm. So that's really stuck. So if Luke expected his readers to think Joseph was turned away from an inn, he would have used the word Pandokian, which clearly meant a commercial inn. But in Luke 2.7, it is a katalama. And a katalama was crowded. So literally, a katalama is simply a place to stay and can refer to many types of shelters. The three that are options for this story are inn, house, the Arabic biblical uh, tradition of more than 1,000 years, and guest room, which is Luke's choice. Indeed, Luke used this key term on one other occasion in his gospel, where it is defined in the text itself. In Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house which he enters and tell the householder, 
The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples? And the word they use there is katalama. So where is the guest room, the katalama, where we can eat our Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There, make ready. That's from Luke 22. So in other words, if they got turned away, it was because there was no available upper rooms. There was no room in the katalama. You know, either way, uh, this rings true. I mean, it, it really does. And tradition is a powerful thing, and we just latch onto it, and we don't investigate it. We just kind of accept it. But either way, look, the truth is, from John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word, as it says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, became flesh and dwelt among us. So no matter if it was carpet or tile or linoleum flooring or if there was a roof or a barn or whatever it was, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. One of the things the Lord's taught me, Bill, is that I need to be more concerned about what the scriptures actually say as compared to what I think they say. And I have a lot of traditions. I grew up with them in the Lutheran Church, and some of them have, have turned out to be valid, and there are some that have turned out not to be very valid. But to go back to the Word and see what it says is critically important. So that's a very good thing to do. In Luke 2, verses 8 to 14, the first people to hear the message of the birth of Jesus were a group of shepherds who were close to the bottom of the social scale in their society. The shepherds heard and were afraid. Initially, they were probably frightened by the sight of the angels, but later they were asked to visit the child. I think they were actually terrified. They were terrified, yes. And they were terrified. Yes. From their point of view, if the child was truly the Messiah, the parents would reject the shepherds if they tried to visit him. How could shepherds be convinced to expect a welcome? Hmm. The angels anticipated this anxiety and told the shepherds they would find the baby wrapped, which was what peasants like shepherds did with their newly born children, Furthermore, they were told that he was lying in a manger. That is, they would find the Christ child in an ordinary peasant home such as theirs. He was not in a governor's mansion or a wealthy merchant's guest room, but in a simple two-room home like theirs. This was really good news. Yeah, it really would be, and it's pretty incredible when you begin to think about the courage of the shepherds to go in and to see this, because they were the bottom of the rung. And obviously the angels got through to them because they did go. And obviously Mary and Joseph welcomed them. Mm -hmm. Pretty unusual. I got a few more things to say from uh, Dr. Kenneth Bailey's book, but uh, we'll take a short break and be right back. You're listening to Guy Talk, but right now the guys aren't talking much, which is really rare. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks for joining us today. You are listening to Guy Talk, even though they're not talking much right now. We are uh, discussing 
uh, a book by a Middle Eastern scholar who is now passed on to be with the Lord. It's a book just that's in my library. I'm not recommending it. You go buy it. I'm just saying it's a book that I love that it's in my library. But we're talking about how the traditional story that sort of is lodged in our memories about how the Christmas Eve went down is not as biblically sound. And it's always good to just look at the Bible. It's like any fine piece of jewelry gets dull over time. You got to clean it up and it boy sparkles once again. So we're just trying to sparkle the jewel a little bit here. So we're talking about the uh, shepherds and on arrival, they reported their story and everyone was amazed. Then they left praising God for all that they had heard and seen. Now the word all obviously includes the quality of the hospitality that they witnessed on arrival. Clearly, they found the Holy Family in perfectly adequate accommodations, not in a dirty stable. If on arrival they had found a smelly stable, a frightened young woman, a desperate Joseph, they would have said, this is outrageous. Come home with us. Our women will take care of you. Within five minutes, the shepherds would have moved the little family to their own homes. The honor of the entire village would rest on their shoulders and they would have sensed their responsibility to do their duty. The fact that they walked out without moving the young family means that the shepherds felt they could not offer better hospitality than what had already been extended to them. Hmm. Wow. Now, Middle Eastern people have a tremendous capacity for showing honor to guests. And this appears to be as early as the story of Abraham and his guests in Genesis 18. And it continues to this day to be the, the present. The shepherds left the Holy Family while praising God for the birth of the Messiah and for the quality of the hospitality in the home in which he was born. That's fascinating. That really is. And I know that's true because I, I've told you before when I was in Nepal and I was with the family for several weeks and I was getting ready to leave, they actually butchered their pet dog to feed me for supper. Oh, please. Because that was part of the tradition that you did that for a guest. And I didn't know it was dog until after I ate it. And I was wondering why none of the kids were eating it. But I now understand. Mm. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the hospitality that's amazing. Yeah. That's how far Middle Easterners will go or people in that area to show hospitality because I'm not going to do that with my animals. I'm not going to do that with my house. But they're willing to do that. This this really makes you think. It does. And he said, Dr. Bailey says, this is the capstone to the story of the shepherds. The child was born for the likes of the shepherds, the poor, the lowly, mm. the rejected. He also came for the rich and the wise who later appear with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Matthew informs his readers that the wise men entered the house where they saw Mary and the child to Matthew 2. The story in Matthew confirms the suggestion that Luke's account describes a birth in a private home. Yep, I can see how that fits together. I do. With all this understanding in mind, all the cultural problems I have noted are solved. Joseph was not obliged to seek a commercial inn. He did not appear as an, as an inept and inadequate husband who cannot arrange for Mary's needs. Mm. Likewise, Joseph... Uh, did not anger his wife's relatives by failing to turn to them in a crisis. Wow. The child was born in the normal surroundings of a peasant home sometime after they arrived in Bethlehem, and there was no heartless innkeeper with whom to deal. 
you know, know it goes to, back to Tom's comment earlier. We want to understand Scripture properly. We don't want to not understand something in Scripture, but we don't want to go past Scripture. Right, so we got to right. be very careful how we read the story. And this is ringing true to me. What's interesting is they use the word in. And immediately what I think of is a holiday inn. And I think that's what most people in America think. Oh, you had variety rooms. People wouldn't give up a room and that type of thing. And I was just looking here on some historical related to this as you were talking, Bill. And what it said is, is that the concept of an inn the way we understand it today had no understanding in the least. This was a home. And this was just simply an extra room. Mm -hmm. So a member of the House of David right? Joseph, mm-hmm. a member of the house of David was not humiliated by rejection as he returned to the village of his family's origins. The People of Bethlehem offered the best they had and preserved their honor as a community. The shepherds were not hard-hearted oafs without the presence of mind to help a needy family of strangers. Sure. You know, none of this takes away from the, the main point of the story, and that is a, a the Messiah has been born to the world, right? I mean, the glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's what the angel said. And, uh, you know, when it says that a Savior has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord, the Messiah. Um, that's the whole point of the story. Mm-hmm. So I'll give a couple of summary points and then we'll wrap it up for the day. But here are a couple of summary points. If you just joined us, I was discussing a book that's in my personal library, which I really like, and it's just called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, written by a man who taught New Testament in the Middle East for 40-plus years. He's passed on. But the summary of the story of Jesus' birth was Jesus' incarnation was complete. At his birth, the Holy Family was welcomed into a peasant home. These people did their best, and it was enough. At his birth, the common people sheltered him. The wise men came to the house. When Jesus was an adult, the common people heard him gladly. The shepherds were welcome at the manger. The unclean were judged to be clean. The outcasts became honored guests. The song of angels was sung to the simplest of all. I know that in an increasingly secular world, Merry Christmas competes with Happy Holidays. I long to turn the traditional Merry Christmas the other direction and introduce a new greeting for Christmas morning. Greeting, the Savior is born. Oh, Mm. yeah. Good word. And the response would be, he is born in a manger. Oh, that we might greet each other in this manner. That would be really good. I like it. I do. Let's start it. And I'm the pastor of my church, so we might pull that one off here. <laughs> but we all get stuck in tradition, and it doesn't hurt to to examine what Scripture teaches, and it all makes a lot of sense. Um, that was fascinating. Yeah, good. I, was, I love it. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it or not, but thank you for, um, for oh, listening. That was very good. I'll be downloading that book tonight on Kindle. I'm going for it. Well, we got to start changing some Christmas songs, I think, too. For example, um, well, do you need <laughs> <laughs> uh, these three kings of Orient are right? I know yeah, we, there's some problems with three that. kings. Yeah. So, and what odd gifts to bring a little baby? Now you tell me there was probably not a camel, but what did you say? Oh, probably yeah, yeah, horses. 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 I did have read this, and I, I haven't. I've looked at some of this stuff, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and I've read that myrrh was actually a burial, burial spice, spice, right? Mm-hmm. And which is. Uh, 
an odd gift to us, but appropriate for the one who is going to die for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. And to think that uh, Jesus was most likely born in the fall or in a springtime because Caesar Augustus was declaring a, a census and because it was probably going to be a two-week journey for people that were coming for the census, he probably would not have been provoking them to be doing it in the dead of winter. That would be very smart yes. on his part. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and that means that I've also heard that at the wise men from the East, it would have taken them weeks and weeks to come, and they may have showed up around Christmas time in December. Yeah. And the, the sheep were out on in the in the flock. The flock was out in from about Passover in March up until November. And then they were in a more of a covered environment. Mm. So very unlikely that it was a December birth. Um, but the Christmas time that we've decided is to break up the pagan holiday, winter solstice, and yeah. try to add some. Isn't it interesting? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, five miles away from Jerusalem. He's born in these humble settings with shepherds coming to visit him when he should have been born in the castle that was there for Herod, and yet that's not the way he came. Mm. Yeah, that's the the biggest point of all is that if you're the king of heaven and you're coming down to earth, you'd expect one to show up as a king, not being born as a baby to a peasant girl, um, even even in a house in Bethlehem. Yeah, so you guys were here with me for all two hours. What does it feel like to have a two-hour radio show? You guys tired? I'm having a good time. Okay. Yeah. Now I know why they pay you the big bucks, right? You know, for this. <laughs> yeah. No, it's exactly. a lot. Two hours every day, Bill. Yeah, it, it, it's a joy. It really is. Good. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for uh, spending time with me today. If you uh, missed any of Guy Talk today, you missed a whopping two hours of Guy Talk. I'm not sure we've ever done this before, but it was really, really fun. You can check out the podcast, of course, at myfaithradio.com. And go to the Afternoons with Bill show page. Love for you to check it out. Thank you so much for caring about faith radio caring about me that means the world to me just so you know i appreciate it all so much and i hope you have a great evening and i'll see you tomorrow thanks for listening programming like this is made available through your support information available at myfaithradio.com